0: Uh, we hope that you go. We are in a series that we're calling Unleashed, uh, looking at the book of Acts, looking specifically at, at chapters uh, 1 through 8, and how the disciples, who some of them walked with Jesus, they saw him do miracles, they heard him teach, they heard him give the Sermon on the Mount, and then they saw Jesus be crucified, and they were afraid, and they hid, and they didn't know what what was going to happen, and Jesus rose from the dead, and he sent them out into the world, In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he gives them the mission statement, he says, "Go, uh, that they would go be his witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so you have people who are kind of in a situation like you guys, uh, they, they, they are relatively young in their faith. Some of you are, have been Christians for a, a few months. Some of you have been Christians for a few years. but. By and large, you're still relatively new in your faith. You're in a new context, college. You're trying to decide your career. You're trying to decide what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus, living that out in my family, in my relationships, in my career, in a culture with people who aren't really all that interested in my faith and many of whom don't believe in it. And so you're in the situation the disciples are in. So we just want to walk through these chapters to figure out how did they navigate This culture, how do they navigate um, uh, all these things with their faith and being disciples of Jesus? And we want to learn from that and listen to that. And last week, we looked at Acts chapter 4, sorry, Acts chapter 3, where Jesus, I mean, uh, uh, see, Um, we're in Acts. Uh, We looked in in Acts chapter 3, where Peter and John are going into the temple, and they see a man who's lame, and they heal the guy. Right, And we find out in this chapter that he, he had been, his entire life, uh, for 40 years had been paralyzed, begging on the streets. And, and they heal him, and he gets up, and he jumps around, and he's running around, and Peter gets to address the crowd that gathers, that sees him, um, that sees this guy who they knew was crippled, who they knew had begged every day of his life, who they knew couldn't jump or walk. They got to see this guy doing that and they, they gathered around and Peter got to address them and say that this happened because of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And we talked very specifically last week about how um, uh, we see in that instance that Jesus tangibly changed someone's life. And I appreciate all of you who were here last week and filled out um, uh, the index card is talking about how Jesus has changed your life. If you haven't gotten a chance, some people posted it on the corkboard right outside these doors. Uh, they're, they're really encouraging to read. Um, but here's a guy that, that his life was changed by Jesus. Crowds gathered. Peter preached the gospel. And if you're Peter, you have to feel excited. If you're Peter, you have to feel on cloud nine because... For the, kind of one of the, um, uh, this is maybe his second sermon, the first miracle we see him performing in Acts. And, and crowds are gathering, and you're in Jerusalem, and tens of thousands of people are there, most of whom do not believe Jesus Christ the Messiah. And all of a sudden, thousands of people are coming to faith because God is working through you to preach, and God is working through you to do miracles. Put yourself in Peter's position. Imagine what it would feel like in that moment to be used by God in that way. To see the kingdom advancing in that way. Look at Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Because in the midst of that feeling, in the midst of Peter, maybe kind of inwardly... um, Acts chapter 4, I'm sorry. I'm sorry people. You can leave if you're frustrated with me. I'll close my eyes, I won't even notice. Um, Acts chapter 4. Verse 1, after, after this had happened, after you know, this excitement, they'd seen this guy healed, they'd seen the crowds gather. the gospels had been preached, and it says in, in, in verse 1, the priest and the captain of the temple guard, the captain of the temple guard would have been the highest person, right? Next to the chief priest or the high priest, he, he, was, the most, uh, he was the most powerful person and authority in the temple. He was in charge of keeping order. He was in charge of making sure people don't, didn't do things in the temple they weren't supposed to do. Um, So, all of a sudden, the number of believers grew to 5,000. In the midst of that exciting moment, Peter and John gets thrown into jail. Now, jail wasn't a form of punishment back then. It was a holding place until you could go before the trial. We learned last week that when they were entering the temple, it was about 3 p.m. So you've you got to figure there was a few hours of celebration and Peter addressing the crowds. And, and after that, they came and it was you know an evening or close to night. So when they arrest Peter and John, they just throw them in the cell to wait for trial the next morning, to wait for a hearing. But can you imagine being Peter after this high and all of a sudden, things aren't turning out quite like you wanted to. Remember, you were in Jerusalem, the place that weeks earlier Jesus Christ had been crucified. You know the religious leaders are opposed. And you're seeing the kingdom advance before your very eyes. And then all of a sudden, you get thrown into jail. You don't know how the story's going to end. You don't know when you're going to get out. You don't know what the hearing's going to be like the next day. Can you imagine the, 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 the despair, the frustration, the fear, the uncertainty? To go from a height and excitement to all of a sudden not knowing what's going to happen. I'm an, I'm an alumni of Auburn, so I graduated in. Uh, to, I'm an alum of Auburn, so I graduated in 2007. And until I moved back here in 2014, um, I was I was not kind of around any Auburn fans. I lived in Tuscaloosa for a year. I lived in Oxford, Mississippi, uh, for three years, and I lived in Kentucky for about four years. And so people didn't really follow Auburn football. Or, or any Auburn sports, right? They barely kind of knew about it. Um, but since I've come back, I've noticed that this tendency, right? And that, that is around spring turning into summer, everybody gets really excited about our team, our football team. Like this is, this is the year we probably have four or five Heisman candidates on our team, at least. I mean, have you, have you heard what's going on at practice? We're probably going to run the tables. Alabama's got nothing on us. Uh, and people, there's just this excitement, And it's just interesting to hear it. Every year, there is this cycle. I'm not saying all of you, some of you, I know Will McLaughlin, Cody, you guys are really educated about football and all that. And you guys would never do this and hype things up. But some people who are less informed hype things up and get excited about the team. And then what happens at the first game? Boom. Everybody's like, oh, my goodness, we've got to fire the coach. Uh, What's going on? Things are terrible. Alvin's going to kill us. We're probably not going to win a game. Right? We're used to those ups and downs. Moments where you feel like you're about to take on the world where victory is going to happen where the most amazing things are before you and then the next moment you feel in the dumps. And that's what Peter's feeling. And that's what you have felt spiritually. You're a new Christian. You're excited about your Christian family. And then all of a sudden the very people who are your brothers and sisters in Christ are the people who have hurt you the most. It's Christians who are opposing your discipleship. It's someone close to you who doesn't understand why you want to pursue purity or generosity instead of selfish, selfish ambition and career. Some of you are incredibly intelligent. You have a, an amazing opportunity before you at Auburn, and you might have family who are Christians who want you to use that to get a better job and better pay, and you feel God calling you to another another path. Maybe not as lucrative, maybe not as prestigious. That you can fill in the high, you can see God working, and all of a sudden you see opposition, or things don't turn out like you think they're going to turn out. And what do you do in that moment? I find it interesting here, who who was opposing Peter and John? Who were opposing? The Sadducees. Who are the Sadducees? Not they did not believe in the body yeah, they don't believe in the body, bodily resurrection. They, they believe that the Old Testament scriptures were just the, the, the first five books of, of our Old Testament. Um, there's not much of a mention, if any mention, of the resurrection in those books. And so for them, it wasn't something that was going to happen. So that's why the, that Luke gives us that detail that they were disturbed that they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So you have guys in the temple preaching things they don't believe in. What else do you know about the Sadducees? They were, they were there, the Pharisees, very religious leaders, and they kind of swayed the crowd a lot. They were religious leaders. They were in control of the Sanhedrin. We're about to find out. It's kind of one of the scholars debate whether it was formally a ruling body or just informally. Um, but there were seventy man, pl- men plus the high priest that sat on the Sanhedrin, and they made religious decisions. Jesus obviously went before them. We're about to see the apostles go before them. What else, what else do you know about the Sadducees? Anybody know of, um, kind of political economic relationships they have? So the Sadducees um, um, number one were wealthy. They were kind of the landed aristocrats of Judea. Many of them had a lot of land around Jerusalem. They were quite wealthy. And who who controlled Jerusalem? Uh, um, Palestine at this time. Who controlled uh, uh, Jerusalem and Judea? Rome. And so if you know your history, uh, Israel, uh, um, Judea, the, uh, um, the Jews and the Romans had had uh, several skirmishes, right, and some wars, and people were killed for their religious fervor, and the Romans kind of saw them as people who, who kind of gadflies um, for, to the empire. They kept uh, making trouble, and so there was a lot of touchiness about Jerusalem There's a lot of touchiness about people opposing Rome. And so the Sadducees who had the power, who were benefiting economically from things being peaceful and them keeping a good relationship with the rulers the Romans had put in place, they didn't want disturbances because disturbances threatened their power. It it threatened their income because if if Jesus was preached in the temple and people believed that all of a sudden Jesus was Lord, what is Caesar going to think about a king being proclaimed in the temple in Jerusalem? What's going to happen when the rulers find out about that? And if you're the, 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 um, the Jewish uh, rulers, if you're the Sadducees, who your very position and wealth depend on you keeping good relationship with Rome, this is threatening. I find it interesting that in this moment that, that it's not people, it's not atheists who are opposing the people of God. It's not atheists who are placing obstacles in the way of Peter and John and the rest of the disciples. It's people who believe they're doing the will of God. It's people who, 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 who um, are seen as religious leaders. But in this moment, what has happened is that their political and economic interests have mixed in with their misunderstanding of doctrine, and they become an opposition to the very work of God. Now, as believers, many of you were raised in the church. Many of you are deeply religious people. You might have relatives who are leaders in, in churches. That should be something that, that gives us a little pause. Because what you need to realize is that you can, be, um, you can be religious and you can be faithful and you can still, or you can see yourself as being faithful, and you can still oppose the work of God. Because you can start making compromises in the name of politics, or in the name of, of money, To kind of keep the peace so that things aren't rocked too much. So that you keep your position or you keep your career kind of safe or you keep your financial um, status safe. These guys didn't reject Yahweh, right? They rejected the Son of God and Jesus. But they thought they were serving Yahweh and keeping the peace by making sure that Jesus wasn't proclaimed in temples and and too much disturbance was uh, was being created. Like we really need to search our hearts when we, when we, whenever we encounter these moments because it's so easy for us to look at these leaders and think, oh, these, these guys are evil. We would never do something like that. But, but, but what Satan wants is for us to think that because we are all tempted and we are all blinded by um, political motives, status, prestige, your ambitions, your money. And all that begins to mix in with your faith and you don't even recognize what God is doing in your midst, particularly if it threatens your career or your finances or kind of the political order that you're a part of. Right now, you guys wouldn't know this because it's like, in, in, it's like a subset of a subset of a subset of, of ministers. But there's a little bit of, of a very nasty debate going on because um, some ministers, in reaching out to Muslims, have befriended them. They need to know the gospel. We need to understand where they're coming from so we can better communicate the gospel. And so they they befriend them. They spend time with them. They they have dialogues about the differences in their religion. And other people find that incredibly offensive. That sounds strange to you, but for the other people, befriending Muslims is a threat to our country. I could show you these writings. (laughs) There are people who think they're doing what's in the best interest of the church... By opposing people trying to evangelize Muslims, these guys think what they're doing is serving God. But in the very midst of that, to protect, um, at least as they see it, to protect things, they're opposing the work of God. In the same way, the Sadducees take Peter and John, and, and, and not just Sadducees, but the other rulers, and they begin to and, and they oppose what they're doing in the name of God, because that they have this mixture of their own ambitions, their own financial interest in their faith that ends up being very unhealthy. And, and, and I know most of you aren't in a position yet where, where you have all these things you're trying to protect, but just realize that you really need to search your heart at various times in your life to make sure that your financial interest and your political leanings aren't missing, mixing with your faith in a way that leads you to oppose the very thing that God's doing in our midst. And so Peter... And John, um, are, in, are in prison, verse 5, or jail, it's not really a prison. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, as was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest family. Now, Annas was not the high priest, um, but he still kept the title of high priest. A lot of the high priest, um, actually, Annas, I think, had stepped down in A.D. 15... So this was about 20 years later. Um, but they would often keep the title. Um, and he still wielded a tremendous amount of influence. He sat on the Sanhedrin. Um, Caiaphas is a son-in-law. Both Annas, Annas and Caiaphas show up in Jesus' trials. So these are characters that are known to Peter and John. These are characters that are known to the disciples. These are the very, two of the very men who wanted Jesus killed. Verse 7, they had Jesus, I mean, Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? So the Sanhedrin would have had kind of a big room, and Skylar, we just throw it really quick at this picture. Uh, this kind of would have, would it, would have uh, looked like. It would have been in a semicircle, so it would have almost been like me standing here and all of you were members of the Sanhedrin, and they would have sat there and they would have it kind of uh, questioned Peter and John about what was going on. So these are the most powerful Jewish men in Jerusalem. These are the men who who, um, turned Jesus over to Pilate to be crucified. These are men who opposed what Jesus did. If you are Peter and John, how do you feel at this moment? You're standing here surrounded by the most powerful people who you know oppose your faith. What's going through your mind? What's what's going through your heart? They might need to do something right. Okay, so it's kind of like, uh, yeah, I'm not. If Jesus wound up here, and I wound up here, so check. You yeah, know, that's good. I personally would be really intimidated and terrified. Yes. <laughs> intimidated, terrified. They clearly don't have any problem with crucifying people they disagree with. Right. Yeah. Crucifixion's on the table. You know, you got to think that this is something that could happen. What else? What's what's going through your mind? Hopefully, okay, some who said that yes yes. hopefully prayers I think confusion as well um, because you've seen God work so powerfully these past two days through what's been going on in your life and in your ministry um, and suddenly you could be dead in the next day or two because of what's happening right yeah yeah so uh, you could be dead in the next day or two con- God's been working powerfully and this could be it for you is Peter married yes yes What does this mean for his family? Are they going to be persecuted? What does this mean for the rest of the disciples? At this point, thousands of them. What would you say to this Sanhedrin? What would be your strategy before them? Yes. Uh, My grandmother is a pastor. She has a phrase to say, let go and let God." That's probably my strategy. So yeah, so trust, trust God in this moment. What else? I don't know if I'd be more scared or more angry. So depending <laughs> on on which one, I mean, I, I could I could get frustrated enough to probably say something to get me killed, or I could see that. probably try and backpedal pretty hard. One or the other. <laughs> <laughs> um. I'd probably be just talking about, like, the proof that they'd already seen, you know, from the things that had happened in recent, you know, in the past 100 days of their lives. I'd be like, I mean, this is obvious, you know? Yeah. So, why are you guys mad? Jesus rose from the dead. We spoke in languages we didn't know. A, A lame person now can walk and jump through the temple. What are you guys upset about? I think I would have this tendency, if I were going into this situation, to start thinking about... Okay, how do I both be faithful to Jesus and get out of here alive? (laughs) Right? Like, uh, I think I would begin to figure out um, what's the least I could say so that they don't get offended. I'm going to make sure that I don't deny Christ. But is there a way for me to get out of this situation, a way for me to kind of step back halfway from my faith... So that they don't get as angry, so that we can kind of make concessions, and they can think everything's kind of hunky dory, and I go on, right? I haven't denied Jesus, but I'm not being crucified. It sounds like a win-win. And notice what Peter and John do, because that's just me. I mean, some of you sound more righteous than me, uh, but I'm the minister, so it's probably not true. Uh, but the, uh, but I, I really think in that situation, I would be finding a way to minimize, not deny my faith, but to minimize my faith. So that I didn't end up being punished. So that my family didn't end up being punished. So that my brothers and sisters in Christ ended up being thrown out of Jerusalem or worse, killed. And Peter and John stand up and in verse 8, I promise that we're going to go much more quickly than we have. Um, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame, and they're being asked how he was healed. I mean, you kind of get like, maybe a little bit of the edge. Like, you're upset because a guy was healed. If that's what this is about, okay. Then know this, you and all the people of Israel. And this is where he really starts to sweet talk them. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, <laughs> right? But whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. By the way, don't just picture Peter and John. Picture the healed man right there. Standing... In the semicircle, and Peter stands up and says, he, he he doesn't minimize his faith. He doesn't back off. Maybe your tendency is in this, but my tendency would be like, "Hey guys, listen, uh, we were just trying to talk about who we, what we kind of think the scripture is about. We didn't want to create a disturbance. We're really excited this guy's healed, aren't you guys? Let's all applaud that. Uh, and 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 cool. We won't. We'll be care- more careful next time." And they, he stands up to the most powerful people, the very people who had Jesus crucified weeks earlier, and he says, "If you want to know what happened, here's what happened." The guy that you crucified healed this man. Verse 11, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone, the most important part of the building. In other words, the, 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 the building that God is building, Christ is the most important part. The kingdom that you're anticipating, Jesus is the foundation of it, and you guys killed him. Salvation is found in no one else. By the way, what's the implication there? Seventy-one people. Salvation is found in no one else. What does that mean? You guys are not saved. (laughs) For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, There was nothing they could say. Verse 15, So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them them to speak no longer to anyone in his name. Verse 18, Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, what is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to him? You be the judges. By the way, what is the other implied thing there? You're in direct opposition to the will of God. Yes, right? You guys think you're the the leaders of the people of God? I have this choice now. Do I listen to you or do I actually listen to God? In other words, you're not saying what God would say. Verse 20, which is on our intramural shirts. um, Also, my predecessor, Jim Brinkerhoff, Mary's husband. um, He is his favorite verse. um, Verse 20, As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. In other words, if you have seen Jesus change the life of people, if your life has been changed by Jesus, then, then when you're facing this situation, you can't help but speak what you've seen. What's happened to you? Is that true of you, by the way? Is is what God has done in your life and the life of those around you so tangible, so amazing, so glorious that you can't help but speak about it? If you were threatened with punishment, you would say, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do about this. Verse 21, After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Notice in this moment, what do they do when they face opposition to the mission of God? What do do the disciples do when, when the forces oppose them? People who think they're following the will of God. People who have the ability to turn you over to be killed. People who could take your possessions. Persecute your family. What do they do when they're standing before them? They lean further into their faith. We've seen this happen. We can't help speak about it. You guys cannot be saved unless you believe in Jesus. You crucified Jesus. But He's the cornerstone. He's the foundation. He's the most important person. In contrast to our our desire... To kind of take a step back when we're faced with opposition. With a friend who doesn't want you to talk about Jesus anymore. With a boyfriend or girlfriend who doesn't pursue purity the way that God calls you to. When internally you start to be split about whether you uh, should pursue more and more money. They don't just kind of retreat and take a halfway stance between what the world wants and what God wants. They just completely stand their ground. They lean into their faith and they speak more about Jesus. know these compromises we get into all the time if you were here in the spring we, we we went through first peter and we talked about what does it look like to be a believer in a marginalized society and one thing that struck me is that peter is constantly telling the people just to lean further into your faith and here's why i think that our tendency when we meet any opposition of any kind even from your own heart is to find a halfway kind of halfway point Here's the thing, when your friends oppose your faith, when your family oppose you taking Jesus more seriously, even if they're a Christian family, you know, they just don't want you taking this so seriously that you're making choices that are going to damage your life or career or whatever. When you're opposed by a boyfriend or girlfriend who, who they, don't, they don't value purity the way that God calls you to, what we try to do is we just try to find a middle ground, Right? Like so, if you're struggling because you want to spend more money on yourself, or you want to amass more fortune for yourself, but you know God calls you to be generous, most of the time you're not going to reject God. You're not going to say, "Well, atheism is better." I've not seen anyone do that. But here's what I've seen: is people say, "Okay, well, how, how much can I get away with giving? How far can I push the line in my relationship? How little can I talk about Jesus to my friends?" How little can my faith affect my life so that my family doesn't get upset? When opposition strikes you, you're probably not going to leave the faith, but you'll be very tempted to stand in the face of the opposition and take just half a step back. I mean, I don't have to, I don't have to talk about Jesus to my friends. They know where I stand on this. If they have questions, they'll ask me. And Peter and John stand up in this moment and they lean into their faith and they proclaim the gospel when they face much greater consequences than we do. How do you handle it when you are opposed? Do you lean even further into God, into your faith, into the the reality of what you know God has done in your life? Why did they do that? Let's look up the last little bit here. Verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. And if you pay attention to this prayer, it will answer the question, why were they willing to stand in front of the most powerful man in that city who could have them killed and have their families persecuted and their belongings taken and they were just willing to, to lean even further into their faith and more boldly proclaim the name of Christ? It's because, Sovereign Lord, they said. You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Creator God, you wrote about this. The rulers banded against us. We stood in front of 71 of them and they opposed the Lord. Verse 27, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate, this is just a part of the prayer, met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and make them go away. That's not what it says. Is it? Consider their threats and enable your servants... To speak your word with great boldness, stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Why were these men and women able to face this opposition and not back down, but instead leaning to their faith? And this prayer tells you, one is that they believe in a powerful God. Who cares if you're in front of a bunch of, of 71 rulers of Jerusalem when the person that you serve, the person who, the God whose spirit is in you, is the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who created everything, the God who rescued the people of Israel from enslavement in Egypt? Why would you care about what these 71 people wanted if you know a God of that kind of power is on your side? But notice that it's not just that God created things that showed His power. That the next thing they, they go to is the cross. Jesus Christ was killed. You planned this, Lord. Why do you think that the cross was on their mind in this moment? What was it about the cross that enabled these men to lean into their faith in the, in, in the face of opposition and threats? In a moment in which they were certainly intimidated and certainly frightened confused why would the cross come to their mind it's a sign of God's power power. how it's a sign of God's power that, that his servant was hung up and tortured Yes? Yeah, maybe it was a sign of the covenant. from the beginning. A sign of the covenant? God had promised this? God's relationship with His people? Jesus had done that before the same he them? Together. He had done that before them and put this together? And what happened? God was faithful. God was faithful? He killed death? He killed death. I mean, do you get that? Here's the thing about the cross is that God used the tremendous suffering, God used the opposition of the Sanhedrin and the opposition of the Romans to do an amazing thing. God was victorious, not despite the cross, but through the suffering of the cross. Do you see now why when they pray, they didn't pray, Lord, consider the threats and take them away, but Lord, consider the threats and just make us more bold. Because you have people who expect God to show his power in the midst of their suffering and weakness. You have people who understand that when they are opposed, when people are rude to them, when people um, dismiss them, when people persecute them, that that is an opportunity for God to work powerfully. God is not, it's not just that God isn't stopped by opposition. It's that in His sovereign power, God uses that opposition to accomplish things for His kingdom. Do you get the switch there? Do you get the mentality? Do you get the understanding of who God is? That all of a sudden, opposition isn't a threat, it's an opportunity for God to work. The reason these men can face opposition like this and not start taking steps back and start making compromises and finding the halfway place to stand is because they know that God doesn't work through our compromises. God doesn't work through us taking halfway positions between the world and His kingdom. God works through His people leaning into the kingdom, leaning into His faith, even that, when that means they're going to be opposed. Because at the center of our faith is a belief that it was in the death and suffering of Jesus Christ, that God accomplished the most amazing thing in the history of the world. And these men can use that and the understanding of a God to know that just because someone opposes you, just because your family's upset, just because your friends don't like it, just because your boyfriend or girlfriend doesn't like it, just because your heart isn't excited about what God has called you to, doesn't mean that God's defeated. It doesn't mean that God can't work in that situation. It might just mean that God's going to work even more. Last fall, on September 1st, we were supposed to have Nabil Qureshi speak. Nabil Qureshi uh, grew up Muslim. Uh, in college, encountered some Christians, began studying, and he converted. Um, he was a medical doctor, went to medical school, but decided he was going to be a Christian apologist. So he would, tra- he's travel- he would travel the world and speak on why Christianity is true and why he, he came to realize that Islam is not, um, uh, 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 is not a true religion. And why Jesus Christ is the only name in which one can be saved. And uh, several of you helped go put posters up, right, all over the campus. It was, uh, it was exactly one week before he was supposed to speak. Uh, several ministries were teaming up to make him come, but we were also excited. We rented out a big room. He going to come and speak about um, his conversion story and talk about the truth of Christianity. And Bill Koresh, who's about my age, um, emailed me, uh, actually an hour after people left, to, to put up posters and at the time, it was secret. He made it public a few weeks later. But he said, "Could you? Could you I've got to cancel my talk. Could you not tell people? Because um, I just got back from the doctor, and I was diagnosed with stage 4 t- stomach cancer. And so he canceled his talk. We emailed just slightly um, about how we were praying for you. We hope you're healed. When you're healed, we hope you come back and speak here. And about three weeks ago, he died. Um, and uh, at 33, I think he was. Just the beginning of, 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 you know, from a human understanding uh, of beginning to make an impact on the world, being able to speak about Islam, being able to go over, travel around. He was publishing his second or third book, um, a getting his Ph.D. from Cambridge in New Testament studies so he could be more educated in, in what, he knew, what he wanted to speak about. And in, 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 in at the very kind of, you know, second or th- you know, third phase of his ministry, could have had a lifelong ministry, he died of cancer. And um, I was reading an article by one of his friends who went to his funeral and saw his wife and said to her, I'm sorry about your loss. And a woman who had just had buried her husband, a woman who, 30 years old with little kids. By the way, you've got to realize that their families aren't Christians. And, 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 and that a lot of people in the Muslim world who were aware of his illness took that to be a sign that God was cursing him. So this is a woman who's having to sit and read comments constantly that the reason her husband died at 34 of of stomach cancer, leaving her without a husband and her kids without a father, is because they follow Jesus Christ. And a friend went up and said, I'm sorry about your loss. And her response was, God is still great. In the midst of opposition... She had faith that the God who raised Jesus from the dead and used that to bring His kingdom to this world could use her husband's death to bring more attention to the gospel, more attention to Jesus Christ than maybe his life could have. Do you trust in the power of God? Not as a theological question, not as a survey, but in your life... When you're faced with difficulties, all the things we've been talking about, family, friends, yourself, do you trust that God can use that temptation, use that opposition, use that frustration, use that disappointment to do more than you could ever dream of? In that moment, do you begin to back away from your faith, or do you lean ever more strongly upon Jesus Christ, trusting in His power?